Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, I'm Jim Healy, Director of Programming for the Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. This week, the Cinematheque is providing free access to another restored Western, Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence, or Il Grande Silenzio. Originally released in Europe in 1968, but never given an official U.S. release for 50 years, The Great Silence stands alongside Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Andre de Toth's Day of the Outlaw as one of the great snow-covered westerns. In the story, an unethical judge, or justice of the peace, looking to clean up his small, remote mountain community, invites a group of ruthless, murdering bounty hunters to invade. American actress Vanetta McGee plays Pauline, whose husband is gunned down by a loathsome killer played by spaghetti western veteran Klaus Kinski. Looking for revenge, Pauline then hires a mysterious mute drifter known only as Silence, played by European cinema legend Jean-Louis Trentignon. The Great Silence is a violent, mythic, and nihilistic tale that provides a grim vision of capitalist America where murder equals money, a theme it shares in common with Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy. Director and co-writer Sergio Corbucci, who had previously directed westerns like the classic Django and the Burt Reynolds vehicle Navajo Joe, wisely stayed away from the typical sun-baked locations of Spain's Almeria region in favor of Italy's snowy Dolomite Mountains. Corbucci achieves a unique and appropriately icy mood, one that is reinforced by the haunting score of Corbucci's frequent collaborator, composer Ennio Morricone. We were proud to present The Great Silence at the 2018 Wisconsin Film Festival, and now the Cinematheque has a limited number of opportunities for you to view The Great Silence at home. Send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's I-N-F-O at cinema.wisc.edu. And simply remember to put the word silence in the subject line or the first line of the email. On Cinema Talk this week... We are privileged to welcome one of the finest of all contemporary filmmakers, Alexander Payne. Our discussion begins with a look at the great silence and the mythic qualities of the Western genre. We also touch on the development of Alexander Payne's cinephilia and the future of moviegoing. Usually writing in collaboration with Jim Taylor, Alexander Payne is the renowned director of sophisticated comedies for adults like Citizen Ruth, Election, About Schmidt, Sideways, The Descendants, Nebraska, and Downsizing. He is the recipient of two Academy Awards for his screenplays, and he is also a passionate movie lover. In 2014, he visited Madison to present a Wisconsin Film Festival screening of another 60s Italian classic, Dino Rizzi's Il Sorpasso. He also joined us at that time for a Cinematheque screening of Nebraska. This week, he spoke to us from his hometown, and the frequent setting of his movies, Omaha, Nebraska. Here now is my talk with Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be here. Thanks just nice for to have, just nice to have this time with you. We yeah, same, same here. 
Thanks for watching The Great Silence uh, for us again, too. Yeah, I hadn't seen it in many years. I saw it, it's got to be 10 or 12 years ago, projected at Film Forum in New York. And then I had not seen it since. And now I, I watch it, you know, to prepare for this chat with you, I watched it twice and really dug it. I Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to see it again. Oh, great. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed watching it again, too. What's, what, what's your reaction to it this time? It's a cold film, man. <laughs> it's a cold film. It's a cold world. Uh, it's a weird movie. It's, it's, for me, it's you know, kind of hard to categorize as a Western. I mean, like what, what it falls into. It's just so, uh, it's a weird movie. It's just, a, it's a weird movie. Well, the, you said cold and, you know, and that's part of its. Yeah, you and I have long been fans of that short list of Westerns in the snow. You know, you turned me on to Day of the Outlaw. Everybody loves McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And, uh, you know, there's a list of others. But um, it's a, this is a grand, beautiful. I mean, that's the thing is like the ugliness of a lot of the story is so mitigated or accented by the beauty of the landscape, you know. Yeah, that has been, you know, that's part of it that's a kind of, uh, you know, unsettling about it. And it seems like the whole thing is built to get to that ending where it's just, it's just devastating. And it's impossible to talk about the film without talking about the ending, I think. It's just, yeah, but it's, it's so cool. I know if I had seen that in the 60s or 70s, you know, when it was still fresh, you would say, or, you know, if we had seen it when it first came out, you'd go, God, that was a cool ending. They just went for it. Because it would be so unlike all other movies we've seen and all, you know, certainly American Westerns and that are what the only, the closest thing that passes for a hero you know, not, he's, that's not even the right word, but the guy, the, you know, the Clint Eastwood of the film, uh, Jean-Louis Trantignant, that he just bites it so, so pitifully. Sure. And everybody else. And everybody else. And then there's a mass murder and it's just hideous. Bad guys win. The worst, no, they're all bad guys, but the worst guy wins. <laughs> the worst guys win. Yeah, that's something to think about. You know, Trantignant's character is... Uh, you know, I guess morally a, a little, a little, a little uh, less uh, awful than everybody else. But he's, you know, he's a he's a guy who kills people for a living. Yeah, and you kind of forgive him, I guess, because he's the only one who's given a backstory. You get the flashback where, like Harmonica in Once Upon a Time in the West, he was tortured as a child, and then his adulthood has been spent trying to get revenge for how he was tortured as a child. Right. You don't get that with Klaus Kinski's character. You don't get that with anybody else. You get that with him. So you, you're emotionally... And he, plus he gets a love story out of the deal. And that's, by the way, something you don't really see in other spaghetti westerns, at least that I've seen. I, not that I, I'm an expert in spaghetti westerns, but certainly in the Leone's, you don't have that rich and tender of a love story. You don't even get that many, as they would say today, strong female characters. Like, right. you, like you do in this one between Pauline and then the hookers in the village. Yeah, and it all it it, it also seems to be a piece that uh, of of the whole scheme of just making the ending that much more devastating. You know, when Pauline falls on top of him at the end. After, so we know. see two two of her men die during the film: her husband and then then her lover. 
in the U.S., uh, it was bought for release by 20th Century Fox. And I guess Daryl Zanuck thought the film was just, just way too violent and too, too grim uh, with the ending. And, 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 and sat on it. There's some speculation that he, the, the reason that Fox bought it was that Clint Eastwood had seen it and wanted to do a remake of it for Fox. And that was the, another reason for Zanuck to not release it. So he could just do the remake and nobody would know the original. But the funny thing is, is that even though he, he thought it was too grim for release, the trailers, the Italian trailers for the film end with a quote from Zanuck where he calls it the, the finest spaghetti Western yet made. Wow, wow, wow. Well, one thing I want to talk about, if uh, you know, the casting, because one thing it is is a showcase for these wonderful actors, particularly Jean-Louis Trantignant and how interesting and weird to see him in a Western. Sure. And I want to know what you know about Frank Wolf, who right. was sort of a – and it made – I looked him up. He's a San Franciscan. He'd been in a bunch of Corman films and then uh, found a huge career in Italy. And I'm wondering what the friendship between him and Lee Van Cleef was like. You know, what it was like for those American stars of Spaghetti Westerns living in Rome for so many years. And just what a sympathetic, he's the most sympathetic person in the film. Sure. You know, and he's given some comedy to do from time to time. And uh, he's, in, in a way, he's the guy you kind of most root for and are saddest when he dies. And he just dies so uh, precipitously, so, so suddenly and sadly. Uh, but I'd like to know what you know about Frank Wolf. And then how they, how they cast, uh, of course, Klaus Kinski, but how they cast uh, Vanetta McGee, what her story was. I think she had been in one or two, like, how did, how did they find these people? Yeah, well, Frank Wolf and I, and I and I had mentioned I said before that Trentignon's character uh, Silence or Gordon, depending on what version you see, um, you know he's the he's the the the, the leastest. But actually, you're right. It, Frank Wolf's character is the moral center of the film. The sheriff, yeah, he upholds the law. He in vain up. He's the representative of the law, which is sure. just going to get wiped out. And he's got a generosity of spirit, you know, especially towards the outlaws who are living on the, the fringe of town. So what I, you know, I, I don't know much about him, about how he wound up in Italy, you know, if it was a, a political or what, you know, why, why he was there. I do know that the one thing I know about him is that the Spaghetti Westerns kept him completely busy, um, not just as an actor, as an on-camera actor, but for, for all the English dubs, even for films he wasn't in, he was frequently brought on as, as a voice, doing multiple voices per, per version. And he narrates that documentary you sent me. Right. There's a, there's a uh, nice documentary, which is on YouTube, so we can link it uh, out to people. Um, uh, about 35 minutes, that is about the sensation of Westerns being filmed in Italy, uh, narrated by Frank Wolf. He appears on camera. I think, he, I think he even dubs over a couple other voices in that as well. Uh, but there's a moment where they, he interviews Sergio Corbucci, who's making The Great Silence, and, yeah. and, and, uh, and we'll share that. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know too much about him. Um, Do you know that he committed suicide in Rome at the age of 42? 
I didn't know that. What year was that? Must have been not long after this. Yeah, in the early 70s. Uh, oh, he he um, apparently shot himself. This is what I read online. Shot himself in a Rome hotel. Mm, that's very sad. Yeah. And Vanetta uh, McGee was also a native San Franciscan. Oh, I didn't know she was from San Francisco. The credits in the film, at least the Italian version that we're, sh- that we're sharing, says that and you know that this is her first movie and now appearing for the first time but apparently she was in one european film to begin with and i'm not sure how she gets to europe uh and and how that helped launch her career but she's she's terrific in the film and she wound up in a, in quite a few films after this uh mostly in the us she didn't do a lot of a lot more european films um, but there's a Western from 1974 or five directed by Gordon Parks Jr. called Thomasine and Bushrod, which just went up on Amazon Prime. Uh, that's that's pretty good. Uh, has has a little bit of a spaghetti Western feel to it, kind of, and a, and a little bit of Bonnie and Clyde too. And uh, she plays uh, the outlaw Thomasine, who's on the run with Bushrod, played by Max Julian. Uh, and she's in an, another sort of spaghetti western connection. She's in Repo Man, right? So I wonder if Alex Cox, uh, a uh, spaghetti western connoisseur, cast her, knowing her history. I think he did. I saw him speak recently in a video talking about the Great Silence, and he said uh, he had all kinds of stories to ask her about about the Great Silence and what what he what she remembered about. Sergio Corbucci and and what kind of guy he was and she remembered him being a very friendly and um, you know open guy uh, about uh, with you know taking questions from actors and uh, talk to communicating. You, you know the nice thing about that you you feel it in the films already, but the nice thing about that documentary on YouTube made at the time is you get a sense of what a good time they must have had. Like, what a rich, fertile time that was uh, to be in Italy with this massive appetite for their Westerns. And uh, not Corbucci, but another director talks about, he's, he's 29 years old, he's just directed, I don't know, four Westerns. They go, well, how did you get your start? Like everybody else, as an assistant director, which Leone had been sure. on the, you know, the Gladiator films and stuff. And uh, just that... As I said, just what a rich time for young people to get their chance to direct and act in these movies and this massive industry that there was. Yeah, it's a big period for uh, for westerns for like like fifteen years, right? They kind of they start to morph a little bit. I'd say you know start not too long after the Great Silence, a couple years. There's the uh, Trinity westerns, so. Western comedies become more common than straight straight westerns in Italy, and Corbucci starts to do some of those, and then he winds up doing you know mostly comedies towards the end of the of the seventies, which is which is funny when you consider the <laughs> the seriousness and bleakness of of the Great Silence. But it's not a film without humor. I mean, there's uh... it's it's not as funny as Leone. As no. a Leone film, Leone films are filled with jokes, you know, a lot of visual jokes and musical jokes and so forth. Not as, but it, it's definitely humor and it has a, a, beneath the coldness, there is a warmth to it. You can feel a warmth on the behalf, on the, on the, uh, in the filmmaking. 
Yeah. And the and especially as you said, the romance between Trent and Yon and, and Vanetta McGee. Um, so but talk about westerns in general. What what's your history when it comes to appreciating them? Is this something you you liked as a kid, uh, or did, did you come late to appreciating them? Like I was. You know, look, I'm I'm just a movie watcher like you, and we like everything. And those of us who pretty much like all movies love that cinema of archetypes <clears throat> and westerns and samurai movies are very much of archetypes a lot of the time and uh cinema lends <laughs> i don't know how to say it better cinema lends itself so well to archetypal stories and i also it's also just nice to be told a story man just tell me a story i'm not in i'm not i don't want your personal psychoanalysis i don't want your relationships just tell me a good damn story and yeah uh, and it's fun to look at horses it's fun it's fun to see open spaces um i don't know it's fun to be outdoors i look i'm sure many people have written brilliantly about what the appeal of the western is but i sure love them and uh want, still want to make one i want to make a western you do oh yeah big time have you ever considered to any degree how Westerns informed any sequences or scenes or any aspect of your own movies so far? No, not to date. Not that I can think of offhand, no. Mm -mm. It seems like in a couple of the films, uh, at least in About Schmidt and Election, there's a certain degree of uh, adversaries who are led to a showdown and whatever uh, contemporary... Uh, comedic context therein that maybe and and it's a stretch but i did steal a riff from ennio morricone's score for navajo joe in election the uh there's a screen like in like a native american scream and uh i use that over reese witherspoon when she's feeling uh, manic how did you come to to use that were you just listening to morricone there were, I would go through months at a time of only listening to Morricone on, in my car, you know, at home, just constantly listening and buying CDs and just hearing everything I could. And so I was cutting uh, election and was in the cutting room <clears throat> with uh, Kevin Tent. And we had this close up on Reese Witherspoon's uh, face on the monitor. And I just, it just came out of me because I guess I had heard it recently, that, that scream and then it stuck. That's great. I I was kind of late to uh, appreciating spaghetti westerns. I mean, I always liked the Leone films, but it always yeah. seemed to me that here was this vast catalog of, as you say, archetypal movies that all seemed to be kind of the same and nobody really kind of, uh, at, at least at that point, you know, 20, 30 years ago, coming to their defense, except for Alex Cox. I guess he's always been been talking about them. And there was a book out 20 or 30 years ago by Christopher Frey. Christopher Frailing? Frailing, right. Yeah. Wrote an early appreciation of them. But I still am, I'm, I'm embarrassingly underseen in Spaghetti Westerns outside of Leone and a few, a few, a smattering of others. Yeah, I think me too. I, but, you know, one way for me to come at them was through through Morricone, you know, mm -hmm. all those great compilation albums of his music and yes. and were put out there. I, I, you know, I stayed away from 
Sergio Corbucci films. And I don't, did we mention that Navajo Joe is also a Corbucci Western? Yeah, no, uh, we didn't, but I, I met that connect when I mentioned it, I, yeah. I was thinking about it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of reasons for staying away from these movies, which I, you know, several of them I think are wonderful. Uh, and Navajo Joe's not bad at all, but you know, it, uh, there was, um, the, the film that I, the first Corbucci film I had seen, which I saw over and over again was a, a Terrence Hill comedy from the early eighties called super fuzz or super snooper, oh. depending on what, which, which is, uh, filmed in Florida with Ernest Borgnine. And it's, 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 it's a kid's film at best. It's, uh, pretty terrible at worst, but it's a film I saw over and over again on, on, uh, on HBO and VHS and, I did never, it's never a film I took seriously. So I combined that with uh, a 1984 appearance by Burt Reynolds on uh, Johnny Carson. And he's promoting City Heat, the film he did with Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And so it's, it, Burt Reynolds is talking about the convergence of their careers and their friendships. And, and he starts with, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood went to Italy and made Westerns with Sergio Leone and I got Sergio Corbucci, you know, and that was a joke. That was a punchline and yeah. everyone laughed. And, and then he reminded everybody that, you know, you never forgot the title Navajo Joe because they say it over and over again on the soundtrack oh, uh, of the film, you know, Navajo Joe, Navajo Joe. So I, you know, that for years, <laughs> I took that to mean that uh, Sergio Corbucci films were not worth investigating and, then I reconsidered the source and said, you know, Burt Reynolds didn't always have the best judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and 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 through the Morricone scores, I was able to, you know, seek out these movies and find them. But and what do you know about uh, recruiting Jean-Louis Trintignant to play the lead in this one? The only thing I found online briefly was that somehow he had been friend. This is the story, apocryphal or not, that he had been friends with Corbucci. And Corbucci said, would you be in one of my films? And he said, yes, as long as I don't have to learn any dialogue. Right, because he couldn't you know, speak Italian. The story, yeah. Well, you know, that, that he was also friends with the producer, Robert Dorfman, and that had something to do with, you know, uh, I think a favor being called in. And this is the first Corbucci Western that is a French-Italian co-production and I don't know, maybe that had everything to do with the fact that Trentignon was in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and not the other way around where it was a French production and they needed to have a French star. But that, that I assume was the idea that, you know, if you, if you have a French star, then it's more appealing. And, you know, he was an international star too at yeah. that point because a man and a woman was a huge hit yeah. in the U.S. So I'm sure they had every the thought of, you know, casting him in there. I, I think at one point um, there was talk of Mastroianni doing it, uh, and Mastroianni also wanted to do it mute. So I don't I don't know that that was Trentignon's idea to begin with. I can't uh, believe that that the director would fashion an entire screenplay just to have the guy not talk because he says I just don't want to learn. It doesn't sound like a true story to me. Well, it's also, it's, you know, it's that great, it, it's that spaghetti Western tradition that, you know, that you also see in Leone. He doesn't speak because of something horrible that was done to him. His yeah. throat was slashed. 
And, and that's the, you know, that's something we keep going back to and we see the flashback of that happening. It's just like, uh, you know, Charles Bronson in the harmonica, you know, and yeah. once upon a time in the West. We find out, you know, that the family right. source of that at the end. Well, and, but then also maybe the thematic resonance too, even of the title. The guy's name is Muto, is silence and the great silence, and it's about him. But also, I guess uh, somebody says early on, yes, his, he's called silence because of the awful silence of death that follows in his wake. Right. And it's sort of like maybe this is a stretch, but if there's a statement, Corbucci talks about the great silence in our world, you know, with, with all the needless death there is in the world, I guess. Yeah. It's the perfect, if it's, it's the perfect person to inhabit that cold world that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, it's really, uh, really, all, really all of a piece, right? It, it seems perfect. I, I can't imagine that that it was uh, Trentignon's idea that the character be mute. But regardless, I, I now as a, as a filmmaker today, I so wish I could have that freedom of casting that the Italians always had. Uh, I guess going back to the 50s, maybe before, but I'm just aware of it in the 50s, where they would cast anyone from around the world and then just have in the same scene and just have them, because they're all going to be dubbed. Anthony sure. Quinn and Anouke May and Richard Basehart and Steve Cochran and all these actors who came over and did Italian, you know, and then the Americans in the 60s with Clint and Lee Van Cleef and Frank Wolf and everybody else, uh, Jean-Louis, what a what wonderful freedom that was. I, want, I wish I could do that today. Yeah, and Brits and Germans and... Yeah. Uh... Yeah, well, that's that's the Italian tradition, right? You just you, you don't record with sound, and you can you can dub everything later. So having yeah. everybody's voices, yeah, uh, has that ever uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm sure that's held you back. You know, language barriers have held you back before too. Um, but uh, would you would you ever would you ever do that? Would you ever cast somebody for uh, physical type, and then maybe have somebody else dub their oh. voiceover? Or is it, you know, I absolutely would. I'm saying I would love to have the freedom that they had that the Italians assumed back then. Uh, practically speaking, I don't know. I don't know how well it would fly unless you just do it. You know, unless you just say, "Hey, we're going to do a movie like this," and you just dub everyone. What the hell? Yeah. You know, I've heard about uh, Steven Soderbergh's uh, Kafka. That, you know, and that was a film where he had actors from all over the world. You know, Armin Müllerstahl was from. Germany or Austria and Jeremy Irons and Alec Guinness. And then you had Americans, you know, from New York and, and Teresa Russell had, you know, California accent and, and, and that always disturbed Soderbergh. So at some point we haven't seen this version yet. He went in and dubbed the whole thing over in German. Did you know about that? No, it makes sense though. Because that's, you know, was Kafka's language and, uh, I guess, you know, what some of the characters would have been speaking. He was German speaking, not Czech speaking? I apparently, he, or at least I think he wrote in German. Huh, okay. Hmm. Um, I, I'm was, pretty sure about that. But from, anyway. Was he from the Sudetenland or something? I forgive my ignorance. Of, nah, I, I don't know enough about Kafka either, but I know that the version that was done was dubbed in German. I wonder if we'll ever get to see it someday. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, 
can you talk about uh, your cinephilia, especially the early years and, and uh, if your love of film watching is something that's always been intertwined with your desire to become a filmmaker? Yeah. It took me a long time in life, at least till my 20s, to grant myself the courage to try to actually do it myself. I wasn't entirely sure that my love of watching movies would translate into loving making them. And then <clears throat> even scarier, whether I had any talent for it. You know, I, uh, like you, I'm from the Midwest and I'm the grandson of immigrants and nothing in my background was pushing me to a career in the arts other than you know, something inside of me. It's okay, there are a lot of aliens like that. Uh, but I just, at the age of, you know, five and earlier, just fell madly in love with movies, as I'm sure you did. And, and not even just current movies, but, I, but I'd see old black and white movies on television. I was just like, mm. well, what's that? What's that? And when we, my dad for many years worked in Kansas City, and I'd go down and visit him. And I was always so happy to go to Kansas City because they had more local TV stations than we had in Omaha. So I'd just buy the TV guide and see what was what was in there and sneak out, you know, stay up late or get up early to watch old movies on TV or, hey, Alexander, don't you want to go out and do this? No, I can't. There's a Joey Brown movie on this afternoon. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, you and I are more, sort of the same age. And then I was in high school in the 70s. I was I came of age in the 70s, which we didn't know it at the time, but we know now was a golden age. Sure. So, and it was pretty much those movies that really made me want to make movies, even though I was familiar with, you know, films from many different countries and many different eras. I still sort of want to make 70s movies, you know, in general. What was it about that? Was it an approach? What is the attitude? Is it, is it, is it just... Um... An air of bleakness that's that's you know that totally informs the great silence. But you yeah. know, what is it about that the, the films of the late sixties and the and the seventies that hip? They're hip. Uh, three H's: hip, honest, and human. Honesty. So, in other words, they don't have to be, you know, uh, completely pitiless visions of nihilism. No, it can be anything. It can be anything, but hip, honest, and human. Who are the key? Uh, who are the key filmmakers you think of when you, when you think of those three H's? Uh, well, the first one is another H, Hal Ashby. Of course, it's he's he's his career has certainly had a big renaissance in recent years. I mean, and people are reconsidered it and seen what an ace director he was in that period. <clears throat> Seven or eight great films in within ten years. I mean, it's a pretty tough record to beat. You talk, we talked about TV and I, it was the same thing for me with TV. You know, that's, that's where you start seeing things and, and big volumes of things. Are there any other opportunities for you to uh, uh, indulge your cinephilia in, in Omaha or, or Kansas when City? Kid, when I was a kid? Yeah. Yeah. So one, one, one font was TV. Uh, one font was the current movies and my, Bless their hearts, my parents would always take me to the movies, even regardless of rating. So I pretty much saw everything. 
and uh and, and things then, are being re-released too in the 70s so there's there are old movies that are coming out again and playing your commercial you mean like kind of the big roadshow pictures yeah ben, i guess those ben Hur, ten commandments gone with the wind sound of music sound of music yeah yeah which i saw like six times in the theater the year it came out you know little kids like to watch the same thing over and over and over again and it was it played for six months in our the local neighborhood cinema which by the way now belongs to film streams Towards yes you, you, you're one of you're one of the founding uh founding guys of uh founding board members of film streams right correct right right and right. and how many screens is it currently three no four so two in the original uh location and then in the dundee theater this 1925 movie palace uh that's been the the main theater's been restored, and then they put a twenty five seat micro cinema into the lobby. So oh. now Film Streams has a total of four four screens. What kind of films have they been showing on the on the big screen at the Dundee? Nothing lately. Nothing for yeah, the last, well, of course. <laughs> nothing, nothing for the last four months. But you know everything. I mean, typically on the big screen, there it's uh, uh, first run art art films, right and documentaries you know our, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a huge hit uh, the what's his name Mr. Rogers uh, documentary was a big hit and then you know, other stuff that comes out uh, but one thing I was good but to answer your question and the last piece of the puzzle for my early movie watching is that the our local art museum here in Omaha had a series every Sunday for probably six years where a local guy uh, now passed on, a guy named Mel Linsman, just curated a series of 16 millimeter classic films. And then he'd come up, give a little introduction, you know, a mini Robert Osborne, and then show the film. And for many, many years, I uh, I never missed a Sunday. Mm. What I did missed, you? I missed one. I missed I'm No Angel, which I still haven't seen. No, it's not bad. It's not as yeah. good as uh, uh, She Done uh, Him Wrong, but. Yeah. Um, what what else did you see at the, at the at those screenings? Let me add one more thing. Sorry, then the, the final piece of the puzzle was my buddies and I lived walking distance from UNO, University of Nebraska at Omaha. Huh. So uh, we would walk on Friday nights to their cine club and see kind of second run art films. You know, Amarcord, The Night Porter. Um, other things are escaping me but with this with the sunday afternoon shows at the museum that's where i saw modern times for the first time city lights for the first time marx brothers for the first time projected anyway um you know he he it's it's he would keep it to kind of classics casablanca and maltese falcon and treasure of the sierra madre and all that it's good education yeah and between tv and <laughs> that series i would say um and still to this day i'm a big fan of warner brothers pictures they ounce for ounce in the 30s and 40s i think they made the best films you always know when you see that wb coming up you always know you're in for good quality yeah and and, and fast what about books were there any books that you were able to get either out of the library uh, any any books of film history and culture yeah. As a kid, they were all sort of entertainment, uh, more about actors, I would say. You know, uh, McCabe on Laurel and Hardy, um, the William K. Everson books. Um, yeah. The, 
Yeah, that, that's all I remember offhand. I still have them at the house somewhere. Yeah, I used to check out the uh, uh, Richard J. Anaboli or Anabile books on the Marx Brothers. And, uh, and the films of Boris Karloff, too, which oh, might, yeah. be, might be one of the Everson ones, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, so, did, you ever, did you ever used to buy Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine? I, I got it once, and it was an old issue that I found in a like a comic book store. And I think it was because it had a story on John Chambers and Planet of the Apes, and I was going through a Planet of the Apes phase. But, I, you know, I, I think I just kind of slightly missed the generation that devoured that magazine by just a couple of years. Probably me too. Yeah, I caught the tail end. Then the other thing too was early on, Leonard Maltin came out with his first book about, you know, movies on TV movies or movies on TV in 1968 or 69. And I got that and kept up with it for all the years until they discontinued it. And it's been a great um, joy to become friends with Leonard Maltin. Uh, that's nice. Uh, do you know Leonard Bolton? I've met him once or twice, uh, but uh, n- never, you know, never close enough to uh, to 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 ask him any questions about you know the books or any specific reviews or or anything. You have you didn't didn't did you, have you ever uh, called him on his ratings for anything? Was there was there something that? Yeah. Uh, um, what's the yeah, what's the one with uh, Victor Mature as the truck driver? The oh, the long haul. Yeah, the long haul. He, yeah, I think he only had two or two and a half stars for the long haul. And uh, we actually saw it projected at the same screening. And I said, Leonard, you have to up the rating. It's really good. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not. <clears throat> I, uh, I, yeah, I remember the, the taxi driver two star review is one that's, you know, a big, uh, big bone of contention with. Uh, is it still there? He's never. I don't know. I don't know if he ever upped it. I'd have to check. What's What's going on with film streams right now? Are they Have they announced anything? Any plans to? I just got an email today or yesterday uh, announcing their plans. The plan had been for a while. You know, everything obviously everything is wait and see, but to open in July at about a twenty five percent capacity and and you should buy your tickets in advance online and then they'll tell you where to sit. Sure. Every other row and with two or three seats between you and the next people in your same row and that sort of thing. So I don't know where they are now. Rachel has stepped down as executive director. You may not know that Rachel Jacobson. I found out a couple months ago and I, 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 I didn't know that it happened. So it took me by yeah. surprise. So the last couple of weeks have been tributes to her and, you know, oh. her, her final board meeting as executive director. She'll still be on the board. By the way, uh, for listeners who may not know what we're talking about, it's a local nonprofit cinema tech here in Omaha. And it's featured, it was the last um, uh, kind of film on the Criterion series, Criterion Channel series, Film Art America or Art Film America, they, they, they've been doing profiles of uh, art houses around the country. And there's a lovely 12 minute featurette now about uh, film streams up on the Criterion channel. I'll have to look for that. I know, I know, I know that series, they were going around visiting art houses. They, they were going to visit us and it wound up being um, the weekend that Damien Chazelle visited us. And so if you watch that interview on the Damien Chazelle uh 
extras, I think is up on the Criterion channel right now. He's, he's talking with R. Kelly Conway inside our theater and uh, you get a shot of our outside our Cinematheque too, I think on that one. Did you do, did you show one of his films or did he select a film to show? We did, we showed uh, La La Land. And then uh, the next day he programmed an entire day of, uh, of films. And I'm, I'm right now extending the invitation for you to do the same when it's safe to travel again. Thank you, I'd love to come back up. Last time I was up, it's been up in Madison. I mean, it's probably six years ago. That's right. Five or six years ago, and I'll always be great among the many films which you've turned me on to, the fact that you turned me on to uh, Westward the Women. One of the truly, great Westerns. Truly magnificent, underrated uh, Western. And it's a Western in which uh, I cry. I cry two or three times during that movie. And it's a supremely beautiful film. I programmed it later in Toronto at the you know, TIFF, at the TIFF Film Festival, at the center there. And I think we might've even seen the same print you did, you showed me, which had been Dory Sherry's personal print. They That's right. That up. But I wept all over again. I was kind of afraid to see it again, like, oh, am I gonna see through it? And maybe its emotional effects won't be as uh, potent this time, but man, what a movie, what a movie. It gets me emotional too. I have the same reaction to it. I'm so glad that that's one of your favorites. Yeah, it probably was the same print. I don't know that there are too many out there. It's from our uh, Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research because, you know, Dory Sherry was a was an alum or, or a Wisconsin native, I guess, who left uh, his, his collection of papers and, and a few film prints uh, of, of movies that he produced when he was head of MGM in, in our collection. So it's a great... It's a great research uh, tool. Um, you know, so I kind of want to wrap up and ask you in this time when uh, cinema going is at best uncertain, or at least the resuming of cinema going, have you had the chance to reflect on the need for movie theaters and seeing something in a cinema space and not on our computers and TV? Well, I always have 16 millimeter projectors around, as do you. And I have a screen up here built in in my Omaha apartment. So I've been screening some stuff <clears throat> for myself. I just watched uh, Man from Laramie the other day, projecting oh. myself. Is it a so, cinemascope print? Uh, it's like adapted cinemascope. It's not full frame, but it's it's sort of. It's, it's almost there. You get most right. of it. Um, but yeah, sure, I miss going to... I've been watching a ton of stuff, mostly stuff I've had T-vote on from TCM and keeping up with Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking, you know, it's what, what became clear just a few weeks after quarantine began was that, you know, it's not, it's, it's, yes, it's seen things with an audience. Yes, it's seen things on the big screen. They're, those are all special, but really, more than anything else, it's just going, just going yeah. to the movies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I miss it very much. And I, I, I tremble as, at what it's going to be. And I tremble if now, I mean, it's been happening for years. Oh, the studios are making fewer and fewer human films. They're only making the big, uh, you know, superhero things and the, the tent pole, whatever term you want to use. 
And I wonder if it's going to be even that more so now that, that really anything small and human is going to be have to have to be financed by Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever, Apple, whatever it is. And then really, is this the death knell of theatrical distribution for American um, human films? France will always be France and Sweden will always be Sweden and all that. Japan will always be Japan. But I, I tremble a little bit for American cinema, considering how expensive the films are to make and how expensive it is to distribute them. Yeah, hopefully there will always be the opportunity for places like the Cinematheque and your film streams to keep that culture alive and celebrate the international aspects of it and 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 remind people i agree but it shouldn't be just in the little cinema text the non-profit cinema text but in in at least in every multiplex one or two houses that show smaller films but we'll see we'll see yeah films that that you know don't that re- that relate to actual human issues and yeah and and have people on the other hand, let's praise Netflix. You know, they are making the films that, that, other, that studios would not be making and, and they're spending freely on smaller and human films and God bless them, at least those filmmakers could get their stuff made and seen. Yeah, and they're doing, you know, a, some part in making sure that they get into theater spaces too. They're, they're, yes. they're doing a little some work degree. on that to yeah. some degree. Uh, can you talk about what what you've been working on or is, is that top secret at the moment? Can you, I have no secrets. Who cares? <laughs> I know you had some TV projects. And... Yeah, I was, I was, when the plague broke out, I had just moved to London. I'd been there four and a half weeks, five weeks. Jim Taylor, my co-writer was over. We were helping to get the scripts in shoot suitable shape. A four hour limited series starring Olivia Coleman. uh, de- in the U.S., it would be shown on HBO and in England on Sky Television. Same producers as Chernobyl, the very fine program Chernobyl, about a uh, based on a true story of a rather pathetic couple, English couple, who in the late '90s murdered the parents of the wife and buried them in the backyard, and they got away with it for 15 years. <laughs> So it's kind of a black comedy about that and how they got away with it and how they got busted and then how they were put away. It's, it scratched my desire to want to do something kind of like a 10 Rillington place. <laughs> but with, uh, with a little more humor, I, I imagine. Little, little, that, little that, humor. that might be a more grim film than The Great Silence. No, <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, to work with Olivia Coleman. Uh, was the real catnip, but it fell through or it was suspended. So we'll see what happens. And in, during this, uh, the last three months, I haven't really started an original as I'd wanted to, but I've been supervising about two or three other things and reading a lot of incoming, and you know, at my desk every day. And is, is movie watching uh, keeping up a pace as you, as you write? Uh, yeah, to some degree. I mean, between work and taking care of an old mother and having a two-year-old kid, time gets chewed up. But usually late at night, you know, I when everybody's asleep, 10, 30 or 11, then I'll sit down and watch. I told you I've been trying to watch uh, 
John Ford stuff. I was I woefully underseen in John Ford. You turned me on to Pilgrimage, which is outstanding. Yeah, it's great. I love the Long Voyage Home. Loved Wagon Master. In general, this this is another we should another session we should talk about American movies from 1950 and 1951. That right. one two punch of 1551 is a huge font of fantastic movies including westward the women including westward the women uh, uh the, well, Devil, the tall target uh, ace in the hole and um and sunset boulevard. boulevard so we can come back to that topic our friend david boardwell still thinks of it as the 40s you know that that's where the 40s ends in, in 1951 yeah 50 51 maybe even into 52 it serves his thesis well yeah <laughs> But I disagree with you on a man who shot Liberty, Liberty Valance. People love that movie. And they're for me, for my taste, and I'm not proud of it. They're great parts, but there's so much overacting and cornball stuff in it that I just can't embrace it fully. I feel that way about other Ford films that there's just too much, but there's something and going back to something you were talking about earlier about Westerns, there's so much archetypal, material in that and it and it's not it's not uh coming out of nowhere with ford it's i mean he's that's towards the end of his career it's it's a whole uh you know he's reflecting on everything he's made and everything he's learned and who he's become and 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 at the same time it seems to inform everything that came before and everything that came after i just think it's a really uh haunting film uh wise film uh you know, it's, it, I, I agree with you in it. And, you know, the cinematography is, you know, because of the time and where he made it, it doesn't, it doesn't have the nuances of his thirties and forties movies. And it, and it kind of has a tendency to look a little overlit and washed out, but uh, I just, uh, I love it, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a huge Ford uh, acolyte. I, you know, a couple of the key films um, that I adore. I think pilgrimage is great. Uh, everything he made is worth watching, but that one is one that I think, for the for the for the people who prop it up, uh, I th I think they have something. I, I'm, you know, and you know, and it's and you know, some of the it's miscast a little bit, or you know, they're both a little too old for the parts. I think, but uh, but you know, archetypes and legends, you know, it's all yes, it's all yeah. there. It speaks to me. I'll leave you with this in my film watching just by chance a week or so ago i watched back to back one day one the next day the other vertigo and the searchers and it struck me that that would be a terrific double bill in a in a cinema that it's and i think they're very similar films in the careers of those two directors that each of them is working at the height of his powers in a really beautiful, vivid technicolor, and all the actors have too much makeup. <laughs> too much makeup on. They're both about obsession, and an obsession having to do with death somehow. And they're just and extraordinarily beautiful to look at. There's so, to me, I found a very clear link between the Searchers, and they're only maybe a year or two apart. Yeah. Searchers, yeah, I think that's right. Like fifty-six and fifty-eight. Yeah, yeah. Arguably, they're masterpieces. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, both as you said, obsession, but both films that 
slowly reveal their main characters through the through their their own obsessions, uh, their darkest thoughts and their darkest tendencies. Yeah. Uh, they go there, and 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 both uh, both shut out of of ever feeling a part of the world at the end, you know, through their, because of their obsessions. Yeah, that's, that's great. The only thing I'll say in in their defense is that I've I've noticed with these Blu-ray and high def transfers and those two films in particular, uh, they're a little, they're just a little too bright. I've had the opportunity to see them both on films and the makeup problem, as you said, doesn't show up Mm -hmm. nearly as much if you get to see it on film. So I guess it's good to bring it around to another reason to return to cinemas. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. It's been uh, a pleasure. Leave us, leave me and your listeners with uh, one other movie recommendation, something you've seen recently that you think is terrific. Okay. Uh, Italian film that is on uh, Amazon Prime called uh, Delito d'Amore, Crime of Love. Okay. By... Um, Oh, the director's name is escaping me at the moment. I'll look it up. Yeah, but anyway, Stefania Sandrelli. And this is a film by a, an Italian director who had been working for years, but he, he finds a way to do his own variation on the melodramatic Douglas Cirque aesthetic, filter it through the kind of coldness that Fassbender's doing at the same time. The movie's, I think, 1974 or 1975, something like that. And then have it all also informed by, you know, the general Italian aesthetic and and Italian passion. So it's a really kind of uh, unique film about a, a, it's a love story set against a labor struggle. And, and um, how did you find it? Did you just click on it blindly? I usually... Oh, Comencini. Oh, that's a Comencini film. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Luigi Comencini. Right. It, Great comic Am- director. Amazon did a huge, uh, <laughs> huge addition of dozens of Italian films yeah. uh, this year in really good transfers with mostly, you know, most of the time they have really good subtitles. Um, I've been, you know, trying to catch up on the Jalo films from the early seventies, but occasionally throwing in a, uh, a more serious kind of entry. And I think I had heard of Delito d'Amore. So when you, when you, you know, when you add one film to your list, it tells you, you know, you may want to watch these other Italian films and then things pop up and you look at it and you go, oh, I've seen some Comencini films. I like Stefania Sandrelli. I bet this is good. And uh, and then, um, you know, and then whether or not I watch it might depend on uh, whether I've heard of it before, even heard it mentioned, or if there's like a, you know, a high IMDB rating for it, you know, that goes above six or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And more than a hundred people have seen it and voted on it. But how about you? Has there been any discoveries for you recently? What about that Jean Gabin film? That uh... yeah, it's really worth watching. And um, uh, uh, Gilles Grangier is the director. Now I'm I'm going to look it up. Look up the title. Do you remember the title? In English, it's the Counterfeiters of Terra of Paris. The Counterfeiters of Paris. In French, it's like Le Cave sur Bouffe. 
something like that. But but Gabin, 1961 picture, he plays a master uh, counterfeiter, a forger, who's brought out of retirement to do another job. And um, it's very, very good. Very right. Good. This isn't the, he made a couple films with Gabin. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, not Les, Les Désordres de, et la Nuit, no. right? Le Caves, L-E, next word, C-A-V-E, Se Rebouffe, I think it is. Right, it doesn't even show up on Just a second. Wikipedia, but it's on, it's on IMDb uh, as uh, The Counterfeiters of Paris, as you yeah, said. Yeah, Counterfeiters of Paris, and it's, uh, yeah, Le Caves Se Rebouffe, excuse me. Worth seeing, very much worth seeing. And of course, one of the screenwriters is Michel Odiard, Jacques Odiard's uh, father. Oh, great. Another reason worth seeing. Well, thanks for leaving us with that one. One more, one more. Yes, please. A Gregory Lacava film called The Half-Naked Truth about uh, uh, carnies. Is that a silent film or? No, no, mid-30s. Uh, super hilarious and I, you know, at the time I watched it, my mouth was open and I was laughing and I was looking up who's the writer and all that. And it was some excellent writer uh, whose name escapes me right now, but The Half-Naked Truth. Great. I, uh, I'm sold. Anything about Carnies, especially. Uh... And a very good Lupe Velez performance. Oh, great. Yeah, the old Spitfire. Okay. It's on our list. All right. And thanks for talking with us about Il Grande Silencio. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, Jim. Thanks, Alexander. Bye. Bye.